Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, his church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. I love this quote by Martin Luther King. He says, the soft-minded man always fears change. He feels security in the status quo, and he has an almost morbid fear of the new. For him, the greatest pain is the pain of a new idea. And this hits the nail on the head when it comes to novelty. We are afraid of things that are different, and it tends to shut down creative thinking. Happy Memorial Day weekend, and welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot. Gabe will join us shortly. Now, as you hear at the start of every show, Q's goal is to help you stay curious, think well, and advance good. And today we're going to think about thinking. How does it happen? How do we do it well and in fresh ways? It's not as easy as you um, think. But one person who for years has helped us at Q think well about thinking has been Dr. Caroline Leaf, the author of several books, including her latest Clean Up Your Mental Mess and her 2019 book, The Perfect You. Around the release of that book, she spoke at a Q conference. Let's hear a short segment of that talk. Ecclesiastes 3.11 is a phenomenal scripture, as is every scripture. But there's something very interesting in the scripture. He made us all beautiful. He implanted in us eternity in men's hearts, a divine sense of purpose. So if we take the combination that we are made in God's image, then and we take the fact that he made us beautiful, he planted eternity in us, a divine sense of purpose. I know you've heard all this before, but here listen to it from a scientific side. We find in research in the brain that everything about the human brain and the human body is only wired for perfection. There is nothing in the human brain, no circuitry, no neurotransmitters, no structures that basically are wired for anything but perfection. In fact, a Nobel Prize winning scientist back in the early 2000s who was studying fear circuits said, no, we don't actually have fear circuits. We are wired for love. We learn to fear. We actually are naturally perfectly you, and we have to learn to operate in fear. It's a learned response. So what is love? Love is joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All the good stuff is in this zone, and all the opposite, the counterfeit, the abnormal, is in this zone. Now, how many times have you caught yourself saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not perfect? Well, the next time you do that, give yourself some slap therapy from this zone where you said that back into this zone because this is your normal, this is your natural. You, are, you and I are made in God's image. He is love. We are wired for love. He only made good stuff. We mess up the good stuff. 
Okay, so what is this whole imperfection concept and how has that crept in and why do we say things, oh, well, I'm not perfect. Well, this is how it works. The design of man is made in God's image. We see this reflecting in the physical. The physical is designed to support how God has designed us in the spiritual. So essentially, if we have every single structure in our brain and our body only designed for good stuff, that means that we can only think good stuff, make good choices and do good things. But we have been given free will. We're a spirit, we're a soul, and we're a body. Our soul is our intellect, our will, and our emotions. In other words, the faculties of the mind, the mind and the soul are the same thing. So in our amazing mind, God has given us the ability to choose, the ability to have free will. So in our choices, we don't always make the right choices. So as it says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, I made them perfect. I made them virtuous, but they choose to go down their own pathway. We have to start from the, the beginning, which is that we were made perfect, but through our choices, we wire imperfection over the perfection. And that, inf- that basically confuses how we function. Now, how on earth do we wire imperfection? Well, thoughts are real things, and thoughts are things that occupy mental real estate. And as you're listening to me now at 400 billion actions per second, literally 400 billion actions per second and faster, you are turning my words into physical structures in your brain that look like trees. That's why I use the analogy of trees. So when we make good choices, we wire health into our brain. When we make bad choices, we wire imperfection into our brain. But the core of who we are is wired for perfection. So the core of who we are, the normal normal, the natural, this who we are in Christ is this incredible perfect being. So with our free will, we don't always listen to the Holy Spirit, so we make wrong choices. And this is why the Bible says, pray continuously, meditate on the word of God day and night. As a scientist, the most important thing that I can tell you is that you need to set up a continual dialogue with the Holy Spirit. As you dialogue continually with the Holy Spirit, so you will activate the perfectly you zone. So let's have a look at a couple of slides to help you understand this. You all have seen time, or heard or seen pictures or been in Times Square, and it's overwhelming and challenging to just incredibly exciting, but sometimes you just don't know where to look. Well, this is kind of what life is like. Everything coming at us, so much stuff, so much stimulation, so many things to do, so many decisions to make. We can't control the events and circumstances of our life, but we can control our reactions to these multiple events and circumstances for our li- of our life. For a few moments, Hillsong paid for Times Square to be lit up with the name of Jesus. And wherever you looked in Times Square for those few moments, you saw the name of Jesus. You see, it's the same Times Square. It's the same life. But if you look at life through Jesus' eyes, through how we were designed, through your perfectly you, you will have an eternal and a different perspective on how you function and how to do life. You will control your reactions more effectively because as the Bible so clearly says, I lay before you life and death. This is the choice thing. Choose life. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. You see, the choices that we make will impact us physically. The choices that we make become part of our physical nature. The choices that we make as the result of our thoughts, as the result of our reactions, wire into our brain. You physically capture your thinking inside your brain and you are constantly changing your brain. This is called neuroplasticity. So how we design our thoughts how it basically is going to be how we are designing the landscape of our brain.
That again was Caroline Leaf, who has spoken a few times at Q events, and you can hear this entire talk and her others as a Q Media subscriber at QIdeas.org. And if you're not a subscriber, why not request a free trial subscription again at QIdeas.org. Gabe joins us now, and while Caroline talked briefly about neuroplasticity and changing the way we think, we will note that changing the way we think, thinking outside the box, as it were, can be difficult. But Gabe, not impossible. I hope you're ready for the talk you're going to hear. It's going to be so worth your time. You're going to want to hear every minute of it. But it's a discussion on this topic called iconoclast thinking. It's by Gregory Burns, who's a PhD and the Distinguished Professor of Neuroeconomics at Emory University. He directs the Center for Neuropolicy and Facility for Education and Research in Neuroscience. It's kind of a fancy way of saying he really understands our brains, how we're wired, how we're designed, and how we actually can think in ways that help us expand our imagination, help us see new ways of connecting people, see new ways of connecting ideas and building things. You know, part of our mission at Q is not just to be curious, that's part of it, stay curious, but also to think well. Well, today's podcast is going to help you understand how your brain works, how you're designed and wired to think. And I think it's going to encourage you. With no further ado, let's listen into Gregory Burns on Iconoclast Thinking. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm actually really gratified uh, by Gabe asking me to come here because frequently all I do is talk to other scientists. So I really enjoy these opportunities to tell you about what I do as a scientist. Now, I'm a neuroeconomist, and I'll tell you in a minute what that means, but in a nutshell, it means that I use neuroscience methods, specifically brain imaging, to try to decode how the brain makes decisions. And what I'd like to tell you is that there's a revolution going on in terms of neuroscience and what we understand about the brain. And in fact, we're getting to the point where we can predict how the brain makes decisions. Now, the type of decision I'd like to talk about right now is about the iconoclastic brain. Now, an iconoclast, strictly by definition, means someone who tears down icons, who tears down conventional ways of thinking. First iconoclast, by most scholars' opinions, was Leo III, Emperor of Constantinople, when he ordered the golden icon of Christ torn down from the palace gates. I'm not going to go into the history of that, but suffice it to say that the sergeant of the army who was ordered to do that was killed. <laughs> what, but actually what I want to talk about right now is the fact that thinking differently, thinking innovatively, is very hard to do. And neuroscience is telling us a bit about why it's so hard to do. And the punchline is that our brains are not evolved to do it. And I'll tell you why. But first, an exercise. I'd like everyone just to take a few moments to think about a sunset. Imagine a sunset. Just close your eyes for a minute and think of a sunset. Okay. It doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. Is this about what you thought of? Did anyone think of... This sunset, it looks similar, but it's actually a sunset on Mars, taken from the Mars rover. Now, I tasked you with a very simple, creative task. Just think of a sunset. And the problem is, is that we all tend to default into the Hollywood picture of a sunset. The picture I showed you was the sun setting over an ocean, which probably means Pacific Ocean, probably means it came from Hollywood. And this is, in fact, what we typically do. Why do we think this way? Why do we tend to fall into these same kind of creative traps? And the answer is, is it's because that's how our brains evolved. So let me tell you about the methods that we use to try to decode how the brain works. And this is where neuroeconomics comes in. 
This is actually the first diagram, first picture of what I would consider a neuroeconomics experiment or just a simple neuroscience experiment. It was drawn about 1850 by an Italian physiologist named Angelo Masso. Now, Masso's main field of research was measuring blood pressure. And in fact, he invented the first blood pressure device, which you see drawn in this picture. It was very crude, but it worked. It was basically two jars with fluid filled in it. And most of the time, he went around measuring people's blood pressure in their arms. Except in this picture, you see his device attached to someone's head. And this was done more or less on a whim. He decided to see if he could measure blood pressure in the brain. Now, the subject is not your typical subject. He was actually a stonemason who had suffered a skull fracture but lived. But he always had this defect in his skull, so it provided a window onto the brain. And what Masso observed was when he put his device on this window into the brain, he could measure blood pressure in the brain. And it changed. And the way it changed depended on what his subject was thinking about, amazingly enough. You can tell by the placement of the probe that's over the frontal lobes. And he observed that when his subject was thinking about things that required a lot of attention, the blood pressure increased. And so this is the basic idea behind our technology now, that when parts of the brain function, when they work hard, they require more blood flow. And we can pick that up. Nowadays, we use more modern technology. We use an MRI machine. But it's still basically the idea that the brain is like a muscle on a very small scale. Parts that are working harder need more blood. That's the technology. So now I want to talk about innovation. And there are, in fact, three circuits in the brain that tend to sabotage innovative thinking. Perception, fear, and social intelligence. So let's talk about perception. Perception, and I'm going to talk about visual perception specifically because we are such visual creatures. Perception is the process that the brain does that takes physical inputs, in this case, photons hitting a retina, and converts it into something that we become consciously aware of. It has its beginnings in physical reality, but ultimately, it's something that's constructed in the brain and the mind. And to prove that, look at this picture. This is actually a very famous optical illusion. Does everyone see a white triangle floating above the background. In fact, there is no triangle there. There's no lines defining a triangle. But your brain constructs that perception. But there are other ways to perceive this figure as well. You may see a Star of David. Or if you're of a certain age, like me, you may see Pac-Man. <laughs> when, I, when I show this slide to my undergraduates, they oftentimes cannot see Pac-Man. Sometimes you can't help it. But this makes a critical point about perception, because the physical reality of this is just in the photons coming off the screen. We're all looking at the same thing. The physical reality is the same, but our minds may construct a different perception of it depending on your past experience. If you've never played an Atari game, you cannot see Pac-Man. And this tells us something very important about perception, that it begins with physical reality, but that is just the beginning. The rest of it is constructed in our brain. How does it do that? So here's the quick neuroscience lesson about perception. The first visual part of the brain is actually in the back of the head. And from there, the information flows over two broad pathways, one going over the top of the brain and one going underneath the brain. And the information 
process that goes in these streams is quite different. The upper pathway encodes where things are in space. So as you look around this room or as you're driving down the highway, your brain is very quickly taking a snapshot of where everything is, and then it stops processing it unless something changes. And the reason it does this is because the brain has to work on only about 40 watts of power. That's a dim light bulb. So there's a partial truth to the myth that you only use 10 or 15% of your brain. It's more of a multitasking issue because the brain only has enough power to turn on about 10 or 15% at any given moment. So it has to decide which parts to divert blood flow and energy to, which is a good thing because if you were walking down the street and you had to continually process where everything is, you wouldn't have any energy left to do anything else. So the dominant principle about how the brain works is governed by efficiency because there's an energy constraint. So back to perception. One function is to tag where everything is in space, and then the other pathway, the what pathway, tags what the brain is seeing. And the first consideration that the brain makes is whether it's looking at a person or something else. There's tremendous amount of real estate in the brain devoted to human faces. And this is actually one of the reasons why it's so hard to innovate. So getting back to our sunset experiment, Until a couple of years ago, imagination was thought to reside primarily in the frontal parts of the brain because these are the most highly evolved in humans and differentiates us from other species. But about two years ago, there was a very interesting brain imaging experiment done where they had people do exactly the type of task that you just did with the sunset, except they were in an MRI machine. The dominant activity that was observed was not so much in the frontal parts of the brain, but in the perceptual parts of the brain. So when you close your eyes and imagine a sunset, it's not like you have a part of your brain, a module that's devoted to imagination, but in fact the brain utilizes the same circuits for perception. It's as if your brain simulates a visual scene by using exactly the same parts that it would as if it was actually looking at a sunset. This strikes me as really an incredible finding, and it tells us about the efficiency principle of the brain but it also explains why it's so difficult to imagine things that are different. Because if perception is governed by past experience, think Pac-Man, so is imagination. Because it's using exactly the same circuits in the brain. And imagination, then, is also subject to past experience. Now, it turns out the best way to get out of these efficiency traps is novelty. Have you ever had the experience of going to a place completely novel, never having been there, and you see it really, truly for what it is? It's like meeting a person for the first time. First impressions without any past expectations let you see something for its true nature. Same thing with perception. You need novelty. Same thing for imagination. You need novelty. Now, there's a problem here, and that's fear. We're afraid of novelty. We actually know a lot about the neuroscience of fear. There's a different structure in the brain called the amygdala. It's buried deep in the brain. It's a very primitive part of the brain. And it also has direct connections to the visual system. And when it sees things that it's not seen before, it has a main line to the amygdala, which then sets off the arousal system of the body, which means that heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, and kind of all the unpleasant things associated with being scared. Now, the amygdala is sensitive to all things that people are scared of, spiders and monsters. 
It's also sensitive to things that we would say are pleasantly arousing. So it's more properly termed an arousal center. Arousal is just a physiological state of, like I described, high blood pressure. The problem is, is when the amygdala is active, it tends to shut down other types of thinking. I love this quote by Martin Luther King. He says, the soft-minded man always fears change. He feels security in the status quo, and he has an almost morbid fear of the new. For him, the greatest pain is the pain of a new idea. And this hits the nail on the head when it comes to novelty. We are afraid of things that are different, and it tends to shut down creative thinking. What are other fears? Apart from novelty, we're afraid of looking stupid. Who has the courage to stand up against the crowd? Why do we even have that fear? In fact, I think there's really only one fear that we have, and this is it. It's the fear of being alone. We are fundamentally social creatures. We evolved in social groups, and it is perhaps the most important thing to us. In fact, there are really only two requirements of any animal on this planet. You have to survive, and you have to reproduce. And if you do not belong to a community, you can't do either. And for this reason, the fear of being alone is so deeply embedded in our brains that it will often sabotage creative thought because creative thought is fundamentally being different and it runs the risks of being excluded from the community. This is a very graphic demonstration of this. This was an experiment done in the 50s. It was a perception experiment. The task was simple. All you had to do was pick which of those three line segments on the right matches the one on the left. The kicker was that the subject was brought into a room, and there were about a dozen people seated in the room, all of whom were plants by the experimenter and told to give the wrong answer. So they would go around the room, and they would all say, C, C, C. And then they would get to the only real subject and measure how often he would go along. Surprisingly, about a third of the subjects would go along with the group. Now, mind you, this experiment was done at an Ivy League college, and so... The experimenters were surprised because these were, after all, future politicians and future leaders of finance. <laughs> we resurrected this experiment about five years ago with brain imaging to try to understand what goes on in the brain when this happens. What you see here is a graphic representation. The orange areas in the brain represent the parts of the brain that were active during the visual perception task, exactly the same areas I showed you in the diagram a few moments ago. You see an upper pathway for where and a lower pathway for what. The blue areas are the areas that change when the person conforms to the group and the group is wrong. Now, originally, we thought we would see activity in the frontal lobes, as if the brain knew what it was seeing but chose to ignore it. Not so. In fact, we saw activity changing in the perception regions, exactly the same parts of the brain that were doing the task. The implication is, is that when enough people tell you something about what you're seeing, it changes how you see things. Now, you may wonder what happens when you stand up for your own opinion. In this cutaway you see coming around, there's only one small blue spot right there, and that's in the amygdala, representing the fear of being different. So that brings us to social intelligence. Even if you have the greatest idea in the world, you run up against the fact that it's going to be different to most people. There's a couple of things I'd like to highlight because this is a very rapidly evolving area of neuroscience. We have large amounts of real estate dedicated to how the brain processes faces. The one on the left shows you that we have 
parts of the perceptual system dedicated to processing where other people are looking. Humans have the most white in their eyes of any primate. And we think that's because it lets you gauge very precisely where people are looking. You can tell if someone is looking in your eyes or whether they're looking at your ear or over your shoulder. You see on the right an amygdala responding to expressions of fear in someone else, as if we simulate those in our own brains. So what can you do about this? Well, in terms of perception, I've mentioned the fact that novelty is key because it lets you see things for what they truly are. But it spills over to imagination. Traveling, meeting new people, all prevent the brain from falling into an efficiency mode. Fear, you can't eliminate fear. You need to have courage, and that's different. If you're a manager, you have to recognize that fear is damaging to creativity in the workplace. Recognize the fact that our greatest fears are socially based. Roughly 30 to 50% of the population's greatest fear is the fear of public speaking. But fortunately, these can all be neutralized. Training, exposure, habituation, all are very effective. Just practice can neutralize fear. It's the, perhaps the easiest of these roadblocks to eliminate. And then finally, social intelligence. In addition to processing faces, our brains are also exquisitely tuned to issues of fairness. And we're very sensitive to inequities in the world. We don't like it. We realize that it's how things are. But the golden rule is essentially embedded in our brains. We assume that we will meet people again. And it's a pretty good assumption. Again, you're listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons and a talk there by Greg Burns about iconoclast thinking. As you heard, it's not easy. It does require that we realize some natural tendencies God put in us that work both for and against our outside-the-box thinking. As I know for me, it's just inspiring to hear this, to be reminded of just how uniquely we're wired, but also how do we get out of some of these just conventional ways of doing things and thinking. I think for many of you, I know you travel. I know that's part of your life. He talks about that, right? That, that when you meet new people, when you take walks, you know, all these things that you can do actually stimulate our creativity and are really part of just these healthy rhythms of how we can live our lives, how we can create better culture within our organizations, within our churches, within our businesses that we're creating. Uh, and I hope it encourages you today. Well, as you head into this next week, I just hope that this inspires you to go take a long walk, enjoy conversation with friends, and and really pray that God gives you new inspiration, new ways of helping you see the world, see your opportunity in the world, see new creative ways that He wants to address problems, to renew things, to restore things that are broken. And that'll be our prayer for you as you head into the week. Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.